0: All right, so the question that was submitted for this week was this. Is Russia in the Bible when it describes what happens in the end times? Is Russia in the Bible when it describes what happens in the end times? Now, this is a really great question, especially because of what we see going on globally right now. Uh, We've talked about this over the past month, month and a half, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Ukraine. Now, there are some streams of Christianity that sees a linkage between what's going on over there in, in Europe with Russia and Ukraine, and the last days as described in the book of Revelation. And, and this question fits the mold of the type of questions that I've actually been asked, not submitted specifically for this Sunday, but have been asked over the last month uh, periodically. Uh, even before Russia specifically, it's usually it involves something that's going on in the arena of current events, and the person asking the question of, does it fit with what the Bible tells us is going to happen, and does this mean that we're currently in the end times? As I said, this is the only question that I I left myself time for this morning, because it's going to be a deep dive, and I acknowledge that it's probably going to feel a little bit more like a lecture than a sermon, and and so I'm sorry that you guys are all coming to school today, but uh, my hope is to help us reframe Our biblical understanding and biblical interpretation of how we see things in the world going on around us and we don't have this sense of panic. Now I believe that the person asked this question because there are a number of notable evangelicals recently who have expressed their opinion that Russia's actions are part of God's plan to bring about the end times. And so think of this morning as I'm going to deal with three concentric circles. First, I want to focus on one prominent figure's statement. Then I want to zoom out a little bit and try to focus on this, this connection with Russia and the Bible. And then I want to zoom out a little bit more and focus on this, the framework, right? Because there's an interpretive framework that, that kind of gets us here and gives us this perspective. So it's kind of a, a person, the idea, and then the framework. And so I want, to, I want to give an example. This isn't the only person, but one individual that is very notable. So Pat Robertson, uh, televangelist, longtime host of the 700 Club, he, uh, he came out of retirement last month, and he elaborated on his perspective of the Russia Russian invasion of Ukraine. And he said this on the air of the 700 Club. He said, I quote, I think you can say, well, Putin's out of his mind. Yes, maybe so, but at the same time, he's being compelled by God, end quote. And then Robertson cites a passage from Ezekiel saying, God says, I'm going to put hooks in your jaws, and I'm going to draw you into this battle, whether you like it or not. Robertson is suggesting that Vladimir Putin is, in in this very conflict, being used by God to bring about the end times. Now, I want to say that this isn't the first time that Pat Robertson has made a bold prediction that deals with God's judgment in the end times. In 1980, Robertson declared on the 700 Club, quote, I guarantee you by the end of 1982, there's going to be a judgment on the world, end quote. 1982 came and went and there was no judgment. It is 1990 book, The New Millennium. Robertson predicted that the world would end on April 29th, 2007. I'm not, I didn't read the book. I'm not exactly sure uh, why he came up with that number particularly, but nearly 15 years later, I don't think that one has aged very well. In October of 2020, he shared on a segment of the 700 Club that Donald Trump would win the 2020 election. He said, and I quote, first of all, I want to say without question, Trump is going to win the election, end quote. Now, this is just a snapshot of some of the bold predictions that he's made. And you know what? None of them have happened. Robertson is wrong in his prophecy. I just want to say that the Bible gives some very dire warnings against those who speak falsely on behalf of the Lord. Now, maybe Pat Robertson never, you know, uttered the phrase like, this is a word from the Lord. But as a notable evangelical who has a huge following, it's clear whenever he's speaking publicly on something like the 700 Club that he is using his spiritual authority to express something that I would argue is a false representation of God's plan for the world. And it's, it's my opinion, and there's plenty of people that I'm sure disagree with me on this, but I think we need, to give folk, we need to stop giving a platform to folks like him, where he continues to deceive, again, not maliciously, not intentionally, but there's a deception for the people of God. I don't know what his purposes are, but, but he seems to be riling people up. But he's not accurately speaking on behalf of God. Now, I want to quote from Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18 cites a, a whole lot of, you know, what you should be doing with false prophets and false teachers. Again, I don't think he's doing it intentionally. He's not malicious in this. Um, but it says this. This is a word of encouragement for us. Verse 21. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord... That the, basically, that this word is, is not something that came from the Lord. It continues. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord... Again, I, I acknowledge he probably didn't say in the name of the Lord, I'm going to say this, but again, I I, I think that that's semantics at this point. But he says, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. I would argue that Pat Robertson has spoken impulsively and presumptuously. You need not be afraid of the things that he says. Now, while I want to encourage you not to be baited into fear and panic by Robertson, I do want to actually address the question that was asked regarding Russia's place in the end times. Now, when Vladim- whenever Robertson spoke of Vladimir Putin being, quote-unquote, compelled by God to attack Ukraine, he uses this odd expression of putting hooks in their jaws as it pertains to, to Russia. Now, that, that comes from a, a passage in Ezekiel, and there's another passage in Revelation. So I'm going, to give you these, I'm going to read these passages to help you build this link. So the first comes from Ezekiel 38, verses 1 through 4. Right, this section describes God's judgment on the nation of Gog. Chapter 38 begins this way. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords. Right? That's that hook in the jaw that Robertson quoted on the 700 Club. Now the text, it's it's a pretty long passage. It it continues to state that the nation of Gog is going to come from the north, that they will make war with the nation of Israel. Uh, A few times in in the uh, passage there is this reference to Gog's activities in the latter days, and as a result of, of Gog's hostility, God's wrath will be against them and Gog is going to be decimated. That's what Ezekiel 38 and 39 teaches. Now this identity of this Gog is somewhat cryptic, somewhat mysterious, because Gog only appears three times in the scriptures. One is here in chapters 38 and 39. It appears more than once in there, but three sections of scripture, I should say. So 38 and 39. The second is in the genealogies of 1 Chronicles 5.2, which describes Gog as the descendant of Joel. Kind of seems throwaway, doesn't have any other context with it. And the final appearance is in revelation chapter 20 verses 7 through 8 and this is what describes the defeat of satan so 7 and 8 say this and when the thousand years are ended satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth gog and magog to gather them for battle their number is like the sand of the sea so here we have a a textual connection between the prophecy of Ezekiel, which was written ap- approximately 600 B.C., and the book of Revelation, written by the Apostle John about 100 A.D. Now, over the years, this enigmatic nation of Gog has been defined to be a number of different countries, because there's not real clear textual linkages to, to give us that information. Um, so, basically, the the... Everything that I'm gonna share over this next section comes from the Encyclopedia Britannica. It's not original to me, I didn't do the research, uh, but I wanna make sure to give them credit. So according to modern archaeologists, which is probably the most um, reliable of these that I'm gonna give you, they would label Gog as a reference to the seventh century BC king, Gygus, who followed the Akkadian god, Gaga. I don't know if that's where Lady Gaga got her name or not. Magog, it is argued, is an Akkadian word meaning meaning the land of Giygas. And this land is on the western coast of Turkey, which also is north of Israel, to put that in there. And so this is where most modern scholars would geographically place the land of Gog. But through the history it, this land was identified by many different people in many different locations. So Josephus, uh, who was a Jewish historian, he, he lived the same time as jesus in the first century a.d he described gog as the scythians they were a nomadic people who migrated from iran to you know the russia ukraine area in the seventh and eighth centuries bc in the fifth and sixth centuries a.d gog and magog were defined to be the huns a nomadic warrior people who invaded southeastern europe In the Middle Ages, Gog and Magog were labeled as representative of the Muslim world as led by Muhammad and Saladin. Now You can see that by now, probably, that it's been very difficult to nail down with precision a location and ethnicity for Gog. Depending on the time and culture, the net has been cast pretty far and wide. But this particular connection between Gog and Russia I would argue arises in a particular channel of Christianity called dispensationalism. Right, dispensationalism is a theological strand that was founded in the mid 1800s by John Nelson Darby. Dispensationalists believe that there have been different dispensations, different epochs, different ages through history. And basically that during these different time periods that God dealt differently with the people. There were different covenants, there were different constraints of how God interacted with humanity. And so dispensationalism, it's a a pretty popular theological trend, uh, especially among Baptists and and charismatic Pentecostal churches. And and I know there are folks in our congregation who would identify as, as dispensationalists in their theology. Dispensationalists have a tendency to interpret the scriptures literally, whereas other traditions might interpret it literarily. catch that? Does that make sense? Literally, or sometimes I'll say literalistically versus literarily. For example, dispensationalists will hold pretty unequivocally to a six 24-hour day creation cycle in Genesis 1, that the the earth and the cosmos was created in six 24-hour periods of time. They might read Genesis one a similar way that they would read a science textbook. But other traditions would say that a six day creation is possible, but they would suggest that Genesis one doesn't necessitate it. It doesn't force us into that mode. That that that's more like symbolic, like poetry. That it's not trying to give the mechanism for creation. So the literalistic interpretation is important as we consider this link with, with Russia. I know that's a lot. I've been giving you a lot of information, but I hope you've been able to track with me. Because I, I want to try to give you some background as to why someone like Pat Robertson would, would make the, the comments that he made, labeling Russia, Russia's war in Ukraine with Gog in the end times. So we have this strand of theology called dispensationalism. Kind of the next significant milestone in that theological development was 1909. 1909 was when the first Schofield Reference Bible was published. It was an English text of the Bible, but with additional comments. I think of like one of your study Bibles. That, you know, I, I use the ESV study Bible, and those comments can be really helpful to understand the text. So, so Cyrus Schofield, who was a pastor, wrote a bunch of com- uh, comments of the texts. And, and, and he was a dispensationalist, and, and this really popularized dispensationalism in the start of the 20, 20th uh, century. So I want to put Ezekiel 38.2 on the screens because I, I want to kind of walk through you how Schofield interpreted this. Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. So here's what, here's what Schofield wrote in the, as a footnote to the passage. He wrote, quote, Gog, that the primary reference is to the northern European powers headed up by Russia, all agree. Now, as just as an aside, I think I showcased that not all agree on that, um, but that, that's what he wrote. Uh, Schofield then provides some passages, I'm not going to cite them, a few from Zechariah, Revelation, just kind of uh, other passages that deal with the day of the Lord and some end times citations. And then he continues, quote, Gog is the prince, Magog his land. The reference, you see it on there, Meshach and Tubal, Moscow and Tobolisk, is a clear mark of identification. Moscow and Tobolisk are cities that are currently in Russia. Russia, and He continues, Russia and the northern powers have been the latest persecutors of dispersed Israel, and it is congruous both with divine justice and with the covenants. Now, one of the other Hebrew words in Ezekiel 38.2 that doesn't readily appear in our English translations is the word rosh r-o-s-h would be kind of the english transliteration of it david jeremiah who's a modern uh, figure uh, he he is another dispensational pastor states this he says and i quote this is off of his website the reference to rosh that hebrew word in verse two is a shortened version of the word russia this can be determined linguistically and geographically So I have two links here. We have Schofield linking the Hebrew words Meshach and Tubal with literal cities in Russia, Moscow and Tobolisk. And more recently, David Jeremiah linking this Hebrew word Rosh with Russia. And I believe in both of these examples, they are both reckless and irresponsible biblical interpretation. And let me give you both in turn. I don't believe that Meshach and Tubal are Moscow and Tobolisk for two reasons. First of all, the city of Moscow did not exist until 1147 A.D., So we're talking, what is that, 1,800 years after Ezekiel was writing. Tobolists didn't exist until 1587 AD. Moscow is believed to be named not after a a tribe, Meshach, but after a river that flowed through the area. But listen to Genesis additionally. This is textual example from Scripture. Listen to Genesis chapter 10, verse 2, which describes the descendants of Noah. Uh, Verse 2 says this, The sons of Japheth, one of Noah's sons, Gomer, Magog, Medai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. So here we have three, in this passage, three of the cryptic names listed in that one genealogy. Magog, Tubal, and Meshach. They're all listed as descendants of Japheth. And I believe that these are references to nations that would have existed in the ancient Near East that Ezekiel would have been familiar with. And you might say, well, we would Couldn't the Meshach people ended up being where Moscow is or Russia is? I mean, I guess it's always possible, but we had, right, when Israel came and conquered the Promised Land, they kicked out the Jebusites, the the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, Hivites. Uh, We don't have any nations named anything like that around these individuals. So I think it's most of those nations had, had either totally assimilated together or had often been wiped out. So I, I just don't think that there's a, enough of a link there. Now, specifically to David Jeremiah's link of Rosh being Russia, Rosh is not meant to be shorthand for Russia. This I can say with 99.9% certainty, right? because that same Hebrew word is used over a hundred times in the Old Testament. The very first one is Genesis chapter 3, that first gospel, Proto-Evangelion right, where as God is levying the curses, the offspring of the woman is going to crush the head, the rosh of the serpent. Rosh in the scriptures has been translated as head, beginning, chief, top of a hill. It is a word that signifies a source or prominence. It is never used to describe a geographical location. Clearly, this reference to Rosh in Ezekiel 38:12 382, excuse me is not shorthand for Russia, but describes the position of Gog as the chief which you see that word "chief" in there chief prince and rulers of the other nations." In fact, there are many times it's translated "chief" elsewhere as well. Now, I can't say with any degree of certainty whether or not Russia is going to be part of the Antichrist's armies. that are described in the book of Revelation. I don't know. I can't. But what I can say unequivocally is that the Bible text does not necessitate it. I think it's irresponsible for us to, to drive these links, force the Bible to say something that it doesn't explicitly say. Pat Robertson and others are trying to make this link with Russia. They're reaching. I don't think they're using good exegesis, good interpretation to get there. There's this trend to try to force the Bible into modern, current events that it wasn't ever supposed to communicate. So before I end, I want to widen our circle. So those are the first two, the person, the quote of, of um, Robertson, and then the idea. I want to widen our perspective a bit and, and try to help you understand how these interpretive pro- principles got us here. Maybe think about this like a target, like I said. Right? The Russia mania by Robertson, Jeremiah, and others is a byproduct of this matrix by which they view the biblical text, and particularly biblical prophecies. Now, In the Old Testament, when a prophet spoke, it was not always focused on the future. In fact, very little prophecy deals with events that are to come. Prophets were the spokespeople of God. Their role in Israel was to help the Hebrew people understand who God was or who God is, I guess would be better grammar, why what they were doing was wrong, and kind of that pathway. How do they get back into faithful worship of Yahweh? That's the vast majority of prophecy. But there are places where the prophets did predict events that were yet to come. Right, think about Daniel. Daniel in, in chapter uh, 2 interprets the, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, of that giant statue that's made of different metals. And Daniel rightfully predicted what was to come, that the the superpowers of Persia and Greece and the Romans, which followed the dynasty of the Babylonians. Much of these future-oriented predictions coalesce in our understanding of Revelation. You see a lot of the similar imagery and language in it. As the Apostle John witnessed the grand vision of what God was doing in the midst of human history to set everything right again, They're drawing, he's drawing from some of these future-oriented prophetic traditions. So how are we to understand that? Are there signs that we ought to be on the lookout for, right, like this aggression of Russia to cue us in that God's winding down human history and preparing to return? And I want to give you, there there are briefly three, there's, there's more than that, but three major interpretive frameworks that are used to help understand how it's possible to come to just vastly different conclusions in your interpretation of the book of revelation so the first is uh, what i'm going to call or what's typically called the idealist tradition now this interpretation believes that future oriented prophecies are not about a timeline it's not about time at all but they present symbols that describe these timeless principles about a conflict between good and evil. So an idealist would look at Revelation and say that this has nothing to do specifically with human history in in any kind of like, uh, um, you know, current event type way. But instead, what it's meant to do is give us a window into the cosmic battle between God God and those who stand in opposition to him. Now this isn't a super popular interpretation, but I wanna give it as a baseline, right? Because there is no timeline in an idealist perspective. Now the second timeline is what's called futurist, and this is what's true of most of dispensationalism. And you know what? There are—I I personally happen to disagree with dispensational interpretations. I think there can be some good ones, but I think there's a lot of irresponsible ones, and that's really what we got to filter out of this. People like Pat Robertson and David Jeremiah kind of hold to a futurist perspective. I don't know if. It, it was really popularized in the uh, early 2000s in the Left Behind series. I don't know if any of you read that by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. Right, that's a dispensational, futurist-oriented perspective of uh, Revelation. And what the futurist does is they look at the book of Revelation like a road map. The, the, the descriptors that are there give us these milestones so that we know what's going on. It tells us who the characters are, right, like Russia, if you will, and when this is going to take place. Now remember, as I said earlier, dispensationalists have a tendency to read the Bible, and specifically prophecy, very literally. When I was a junior uh, junior in high school, I uh, read a book called The Apocalypse Code by Hal Lindsey. He's the author who also wrote The Late Great Planet Earth, I think sometime in the 70s. Honestly, I can't remember. It's been so long. I mean, I I don't even know how long ago I was in high school, but I don't remember most of that book, but there's one image that is, like, grafted into my mind um, that sticks out at me, right? Because there are these, in Revelation, as you read Revelation, there are these very odd beasts. One of them um, are these uh, these locusts. Revelation 9, there's these locusts of having, like, crowns on their heads and human faces, teeth like lions, iron breastplates, uh, th- th- these, these wings that uh, ha- resembled the sound of just a multitude, right? A thousand chariots rushing to war. And so what Hal Lindsay suggests, his interpretive framework, is that when John had this vision of revelation in the first century AD, what he was actually viewing was the 20th or 21st century where the end times took place, right? And so, you know, there is no creature on earth that resembles anything described in revelation 9 and so how lindsay says well what john actually saw were these like advanced black hawk helicopters but john in a first century ad didn't have the language right he he doesn't know what a helicopter is he doesn't know what a rotocraft is and so he is using first century language to define something that defies explanation for him do you see how this works right the futurist is trying to force all these prophecies, all these descriptors into current or modern examples of how they could possibly be fulfilled literally. Whereas I I would argue there's a lot in Revelation that uses mythological language. And and I think mythological language is meant to be understood symbolically, but again, I'm I'm digressing. Let me get off. Let me get back to this. So the last perspective that I'm going to share is what's called preterist. And this is where i would fall and I, i'm what you would call a partial preterist a preterist believes that the things that are found in revelation have already been fulfilled now i'm a partial preterist meaning i believe that many of them have but of course it's clear if you read revelation that there's stuff yet to come right god hasn't descended and dwelled with man and the, there's not a river flowing from the temple and, and all that stuff so there there are clear places where things still need to happen but we have to remember a preterist would say that the purpose of the book of Revelation was not meant to be a road map for the future. But at the turn of the first century, when it was written, there was fierce persecution by the Christians, by the Roman army, by the Roman empire, excuse me. And, and I would argue, my interpretation of Revelation, I could summarize the book in one word, the purpose of the book in one word, perseverance. It was meant to, To encourage Christians who were suffering at the hands of evil that God was still on the throne. That, That while they were suffering, it was momentary suffering because there was going to be an end, there was going to be a day that God was going to win a decisive victory. It was telling them, stand strong in the faith while they're literally being killed at the hands of their enemies. Their present suffering wasn't the final word. Again, that doesn't mean that there's not any future-oriented language in the book. But John's revelation, the letter that John wrote, was not first and foremost for Christians in the 21st century to understand what was going to happen in the end times. That's not why it was penned. It was to encourage those who were suffering in the 1st century A.D. So I'm going to close with, with one last question that I receive regularly, and this all fits together. After Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I had someone ask me if I believe that we're living in the end times. This is not the same person who asked the question of of that, you know, for the sermon this morning. But this is a question that I get time and time again. We hear war, see wars and hear rumors of wars. Are we in the end times? Here's my response. Yes, we are right now living in the end times but probably not in the way that you think. The first disciples of Jesus believed that they were living in the end times. They fully anticipated Jesus returning in their lifetimes, but He didn't. He tarried. We don't know why He's waited, but as a result, I would argue that we have been living in the end times for the last 2,000 years. Jesus made it clear while he walked the earth that no one but the Father knows the precise date, the precise time and hour when the second coming is going to be. But I can tell you this, every day that passes is one day closer to when that time is, when God comes back. It could be five years from now. It could be five minutes from now. It could be 500 years from now. don't we don't know the message of the bible is not to decipher exactly when that's going to be it's not to crack the code of the apocalypse jesus provided signs of his coming not that we would know the day and the hour but the biblical witness tells us what we're supposed to do with that information biblical witness says to be prepared be prepared Jesus is coming back. We must be ready to greet him. If you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't try to project like this is finally it. We're there. Instead, use it as an opportunity to get your house in order so that you're prepared to meet your maker when he comes back. Right? The message, I had a student years ago in my last job when I worked with students at Pitt that said like, man, revelation is so scary. And if you're not looking at it through, I think, the the correct lens, it can be. There's all this wrath, there's all this judgment, there's all these scary things, you know, blood up to the bridles of horses. But that's not what revelation is supposed to be about. It's supposed to prepare us so that we would be, we would persevere in all circumstances, acknowledging God right? Not a message of fear or panic, but one of steadfastness and faithfulness. So let me give you a few reflection questions, then I'll circle back and see if there's any. It doesn't look like there's any questions, but if you can, you can text me. So here's some some reflection questions, and I'll post this on uh, Facebook this week. So the first is this. Are there any Christian spokespeople that you need to examine a little bit more critically what they say? And I gave you examples of Pat Robertson, who I think is, is impulsively and recklessly making statements that, that is not in line with, I think, what God, God's plan are. But the caveat, my asterisk to that is critically examine what I say as well, you know? Like, sure, I've got, a, I've got a degree where I studied the Bible, but I don't know everything there is to know. So examine, examine the sources that you have. Second of this, how do you interpret the book of Revelation? Right? Would you consider yourself an idealist, a futurist, a preterist? And how does that interpretation, how does your understanding of revelation affect the way that you live your everyday lives? There were um, gosh, I can't think of what the, they were. There was a, kind of a, they were a little cultish, uh, but back in like the early 1900s, they thought Jesus, they had like, the right day that Jesus was coming back and they sold everything that they had. They went onto that mountaintop, that hilltop, waiting for him to come back. He didn't come back uh, at that point in time, right? But, but their theology of how they inter- interpreted Revelation and how they had nailed down precisely the date affected their lives. I mean, I give them credit. They thought Jesus was coming back, so they, they jettisoned everything that wasn't spiritual in their minds. Right? What, what need do you have of a house if Jesus is coming back tomorrow? So they were at least consistent right? Their interpretation affected how they lived their lives. And I think there's a lot in Revelation. Whether we believe, right? Whether we believe the earth is going to be vaporized and we're going to go to to live in heaven with God somewhere else, or if, you know, another interpretation is that God descends to earth and there's a renewed earth, so we're going to actually live here for all eternity with God. That shifts the way in which you care for this world, whether it's going to burn in the end or not, Does that make sense? How you interpret Revelation affects a lot too long of a tangent. Last is, what do you think about the imminence of Jesus' return? Imminence means suddenness. It's about to happen. What feelings does this raise for you as you think about it, right? Is there fear? Is there anxiety? Is there excitement? Why do you feel this way? So there's just some things to to kind of process through how we understand revelation, how we feel we've prepared our hearts for Jesus' return and uh, the sources that we're, we're listening to. All right. let me pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is sharper than any double-edged sword to cut through the bone into the marrow. May it pierce us. May it leave us transformed. But Lord, in this there is, it is a hard book to understand, Lord. Your Holy Spirit provides clarity. But there's a lot of places that faithful disciples of Jesus have strong and stark disagreements. Lord, bring us clarity in a way that we would be generous with one another in those interpretations. Lord, but that we would also be very shrewd to acknowledge and recognize when the, ba- the Bible is being used uh, inappropriately. Lord, guide us in this journey, and, and above all, may, may we be prepared for your return. May we anxiously and excitedly look forward to that day, whether it happens in our lifetimes or not. Lord, thanks for walking with us every step of this journey. In Jesus' name, amen.